Welcome to the Innovation Roundtable Insights Podcast. This episode was recorded in Copenhagen during the 2017 Innovation Roundtable Summit, where our colleague Leonard sat down with Ingo Routh, adjunct professor in design and innovation management at IE Business School. Ingo has conducted over 120 interviews with executives and shares lessons learned on the challenges and advantages large companies encounter in integrating design thinking into their organizations. Maybe we can start the interview by you just briefly explaining who you are, uh, what research academic institution you work at, and kind of what your research field is uh, within. Sure. Uh, so my name is Ingo Rao. I work with IE Business School in Madrid, where I'm a junk professor, and I work with uh, the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. My research area is mainly focused on how large organizations go about bringing new approaches into the existing organization and trying to modify that to build their innovation capability. One of the things that you have been looking into a lot is, is design thinking and also how design thinking is applied or is integrated into Uh, large companies and organizations. Uh, what do you think, think are some of the challenges in doing that and what have you found um, in the whole process of, of this making it happen? Right. So um, some of the challenges that we found with large organizations bringing design thinking in was that initially a lot of these organizations or the individuals that were in charge were actually... Um, tempted to copy what is out there. So they went to an educational institution and thought, like, this is the way we can work with design thinking. And as long as they kept that in a bubble, like in a separate team or innovation lab or unit, that would work. But as soon as it started to interface with existing organizational units and functions, actually, they started to get problems. And um, so being aware of that, that, like, design thinking is not, like, the solution for all your innovation problems, but just part of it, I think, is one of the initial and most um, important things to actually acknowledge and realize. When you think of some of the processes that you have in large companies, or especially technology companies, you know, rigid processes and stage gates and, and uh, quality controls along the way, and how does that go, how is design thinking integrated So this iterative uh, working style into those linear processes that you still have in many companies? Right, good question. So um, as you can imagine, every organization has their own way of doing things. And with together with my colleagues, I did about 120 interviews initially. And in these interviews, we realized that everybody interpreted design thinking in a different way and because of that brought it to fruition in different ways so some people established a front-end process where they actually came up with ideas which they then try to actually bring into the existing organizations others said like we got to have a separate lab where people work on innovative ideas and we want to incubate them outside the organization another way is to what we call cherry picking or picking like out of a toolbox so interpreting design thinking not as a process but as a number of tools that you can use to supplement your pre-existing processes so one uh, company that uh, develops uh, consumer electronics actually realized that they already had a good engineering approach that worked for them but like the speed was lacking and the customer insight was lacking that were the two main things they wanted to take away so what they did actually was they um train their teams in um, ethnography and help them to really understand the user and their needs early on and to take these then and 
iterate and prototype things more rapidly than they were used to before. Because before prototyping was only used to show like the final like mock-up to convince management, not for testing. So that was new to, do, to them, but everything else kind of stayed the same. So it really depends on your organization, the capabilities that you have, and what your aim is that you would come to different forms of utilizing design thinking, whether it is as a separate thing or as an integrated thing inside your organization. Maybe you can reflect about a bit about those different two different paths that you are describing right now, like more like a, an isolated way of doing it and separately, organizationally, and then more the integration throughout the, the larger part of the organization. Right. What are some of the uh, challenges and what are some of the decision-making that you saw in some of the companies going either one way or the other? Right. So not all of the decision-making has been done strategically. Sometimes uh, people, especially when you work with new approaches to innovation, face massive resistance. And because of that, they're kind of forced to water it down. In other cases, there were strategic choices as the one that I just um, explained briefly. So let's talk about like the one where it's separate or where it's in, in a separate entity first. So when it's in a separate entity, actually it is usually done to test things out, to prototype a little bit and see how this approach can affect either existing business or an existing area of uh, engagement and to come up with radically new idea that might not fit the organization. So you actually need that lab because you would otherwise be constrained by all the things that are already ongoing in the organization. So you, it really needs space to um, grow and develop. Um, over time, people, depending on the industry, would, in these labs, would develop their own approaches. So they would start adding things that are unique and that are needed in order to drive innovation in their specific fields. So, for example, if you think about design thinking in the medical sector, it's radically different from design thinking in an automotive company. And so you can imagine that prototyping, uh, consumer research, ideation, all these things require slightly different modifications or completely different new tools that are not existing. So this unit has to come up with them and has to find their way, where design thinking, most of the time, what I've seen was the starting point to actually um, get teams and these innovation labs on their journey. When it comes to like using it internally, I think a major issue there is if you think that you can achieve radical innovation by working laterally across silos and like make innovation work and design thinking work with 20% of people's time. I think, or at least I haven't seen it working, and there's some studies that support that regarding the ambidextrous organization. I don't want to go too, too deep into that, but basically what it says is that you should actually be aware of what kind of innovation you're trying to achieve, and based on that, like pick or choose how you want to like bring design thinking to life. So if you want to have radical, it might be better actually to put that outside of the existing organization. If you want to have incremental, like an incremental is not bad. I mean, we all thrive on incremental innovation. Most of innovation is actually incremental or like building on what we already have. So then you can actually use that inside the existing organization, but then don't force this on people. See what you have already and use design thinking to complement what you have already. If you don't have a fuzzy front-end process, well, work with people to see how this could work for them. Because if you set it up to like come up with ideas like as an upfront thing, and then you come up with ideas, and then you hand it over to R&D, chances are R&D is not interested in taking on an extra task. So really try to integrate um, 
R&D and all people that are needed like in these teams, in these work groups, in your efforts. So there's no point in like doing this top down. If you preach human centeredness through design thinking, it's actually important that you also live that when you bring the approach to the organization. When we're talking about design, design thinking, it's it's a lot also about you know gathering customer user insights uh, first. Well, how what are some of the methods and approaches you have seen in gathering those user insights for the ones that are not so obvious, the one that are unspoken, the one that you cannot ask uh, in interviews or surveys and so on? What are some of the methods that you see design thinking has, and and what what value does it have in in in, the, in that approach? Right. So I think that a lot of the things that we see in design thinking are inspired by ethnography, and uh, ethnographers have done these things for many many years. And sometimes we don't actually have the time to go as deep. So time is certainly a thing that we need to invest in order to get deep and get to late needs. Um, However, there are different approaches that we can take, and we usually talk about triangulation. And what we mean by that is we use different approaches to actually probe for uh, data and then eventually derive with a deeper understanding of the customer. So the three approaches are um, immersion, so really living what the other person goes through. There's one example, which was a study on cancer patients. And uh, one person in the design team actually shaved his head in order to experience like what it is walking the streets like with a shaved head and like um, experiencing the looks of others. So that's an example of immersion. Then you have interviews, which most people do. Um, however, in interviews, it's always a little bit tricky because you don't really know if people state what they think you want to hear or if they state what they actually do. And then it's usually quite good to like complement that with observation. So if they tell you about a certain activity that they do, you could ask, can you show me? And most of the time, people will show you. And most of the time, it's likely that what they have described is not actually 100% accurate, right? So it's important to combine these three to really get a deeper understanding. And the second thing that is, I think, related is the way you approach synthesis. So how do you take these data points and how do you derive with a deeper understanding? And that's where usually people don't spend as much time because it's not a very fun activity to like find the underlying kind of information or the underlying kind of clues that are in the data that you have collected. And so spending time on synthesis, really trying a couple of frameworks, seeing the data from different angles might help you actually to come or derive with a deeper understanding. And that's what you want to have getting out of this phase. So it's not so much only about like having the right tools and gathering a lot of data. It's also how you treat the data and how you use that to actually come up with a deeper understanding of what's right in front of you. Now, often, at least, in those larger companies, uh, uh, the argument comes, yeah, but you're doing that with a couple of people. You're going really deep. It's very qualitative. How do you make sure in the process of driving design thinking forward towards more like of an innovation project or prototy prototyping and where you have, you know, uh, yeah, prototypes in your hand and so on, how do you make sure that this qualitative work is applied, that you test it, and those needs are also applied to a, a, a big market that you want to address? Right, right. So I think there, there are a couple of things related to, to your question. First of all, when, when should you use qualitative research? You should use it when you're unsure of the terrain, when you really want to like find something new. Quantitative research is usually influenced by the expectations and ideas that we have. These inform the questions, so all questions are kind of leading, right? So open interviews, observation, and immersion, uh, immersion 
these things actually don't lead as much. They uh, help you to explore. So that's where qualitative research is really good. But as you say, as soon as you have an hypothesis about what works and what the consumer really wants, you can start shift from qualitative to quantitative. You shouldn't do that really early on, but like I would say that the more you progress towards a prototype that you want to put into production, the more likely it is that you can find quantitative measures or hypotheses that you want to test. And one way to do that, which some people don't do, they just use the like one prototype and just put it in front of people, is actually before you do that, think about what are the hypotheses within your prototype? What are the things that will break that prototype or that could break that business if it's going to be a business? Play devil's advocate for 20 minutes. Let everybody write down on a poster, like, what would break this thing? Make a list out of that. Sort it. Find out, like, the hypothesis that is the most challenging for this and is needed for this to survive, and then test for it. And it doesn't have to be your product. It can be part of your product. It can be part of your service. But if these critical hypotheses are not tested, or in, even in a quantified way, Chances are that you were playing a big game here and you gamble quite a lot. So I would say, I would see the, um, going from qualitative to quantitative research as kind of like a, a scale that kind of develops with the process and develops with the understanding that you think you have. So early on, qualitative, later on, quantitative as a rule of thumb. Let me ask you a challenging, challenging question, I think at least. Um, Now you have teams working on, on those projects and, and the way you equip those teams need to probably encompass those, those uh, ways of thinking as well because starting very... Now I don't want to put people in, in a qualitative bucket and in a quantitative bucket and I know there are people that are handling both, uh, both kind of ways of thinking and approaching things. Right. But usually there is some kind of uh, divide between... Um, the ways people approach problems. Right. So what, how do you see that progression and, and also in terms of team development and team staffing on those projects? So my experience from coaching teams is actually it's rare that you get a perfect team. And so the staffing question is important, but in most cases you can't pick and choose. It's like you get the people that you get and you got to work with them. So yes, it's interesting to think about like, okay, what's the perfect team combination? And there are a couple of studies on this and you can look into these with various results. And some say things like Myers-Briggs, for example, or disk assessment, they don't have any effect at all. Others say they have. Uh, some people advocate that a good mix of divergent and convergent thinkers is actually important to drive the process and just like come up with enough ideas, but also like land on a point. So you can think of all this, but at the end of the day, if you're in a large organization, like the people you have, you got to work with. And there, it's not so important who you have, but it's more important to be actually aware of what strengths you have and what strengths you are lacking. Because if you're aware of what strengths you are lacking, awareness is the first like milestone in behavior change. You can actually start to think about how should we behave differently. So every time you run into a dead end, and the team turns in circles, which is a pretty good indicator of you're stuck, think about, like, what are we lacking? What haven't we done? What are our kind of biases? And how did they drive our decisions to this point? If you help them to understand early on which capabilities, which kind of personality types, whatever you want to use, are lacking, you give them a much better lever to change and to be successful than, like, trying to force the right people to come in based on personality tests, because chances are that the personality test helps you to find the right people, but these people don't want to work together. 
Now, we've been talking, touching upon that uh, experiments, testing, important part in design thinking and also later stages in the development of, of uh, products and services. Uh, what do you think is important uh, to get right and how do you set up experiments ideally or pilots and how do you measure on them as well? Right. Well, it's a big question. And as a researcher, I'm, I'm tempted to say it depends, but yeah. of course you want to have something practical. So the first thing, let's assume you have a service prototype and you have like a, a customer journey so it has many kind of interaction points, that many touch points. So like, yes, you could ideally test this all in one go, but you probably wouldn't do it. You probably would start by, either you can start with all in one go and then see, okay, where does it break down? Or you could say like, okay, these touch points are the most crucial. If these don't work, right, uh, chances are the whole thing won't survive. So you would focus on those and really prototype for those. So you wouldn't like do a super extensive test, but focusing on those and then identifying, as I mentioned earlier, the most important hypothesis, like Listy's hypothesis, um, is kind of like what is the fit basically of your value proposition and what the customer wants, right? You have assumptions regarding this. List these as a hypothesis for these touch points and then go out with them and test them, no matter if it's qualitatively or quantitatively, but try to put some data behind it. And oftentimes it's a little bit time consuming and people shy away from doing like really good testing. But I think it's important to be very clear that testing is not about putting a product in front of people and selling it. It's like being conscious about the things that you want to learn. Learning is the key to testing. Like it's the thing why we test. And then be conscious about that you want to learn what you want to learn. And then with that in mind, create a couple of hypotheses, create a prototype. It might not be the product or your service, but it might be parts of it. Use that and then find the people, the right people to test this with. No matter if it's like everyone, like although that's not a very good demographic for testing, and let's say you want to do A-B testing on the web, or if it's a specific um, customer that is an extreme user of your services. For example, like if you're in a coffee business, somebody that like drinks like 10 cups of coffee every day. I don't know. What would you think where, um, you've mentioned it in the beginning that design thinking is, um, is, a, is a mindset or an approach or there are lots of different interpretations and angles on it, but where do you think uh, it works in which projects and where do you think it doesn't work? What have you seen in, in, in researching some of the organizations? Uh, that's a tough question. And uh, I would say like, so here I need to take a little bit of a detour. It really depends on how you interpret design thinking for yourself. We have seen companies that actually said, for us, design thinking, it's about going out and learning from the customer. That's all that is. So it's a principle. And the way we will enforce this is by allowing um, we give out Starbucks card to every employee and say, like, have a coffee on us with the customer and book it in our booking system. So that's, is that design thinking? Well, we can discuss this, right? We can say no, but for this company, it was. So and in other cases, it was like design thinking is this process. It has five stages. We need to go from A to Z, right? And you really have to stick to it. And I can't tell you if it's right or wrong. You have to always see the circumstances. You have to always see like how they bring it to life in their organization and what is really needed. One thing on the mindset is like I hear a lot of people talk about design thinking as a mindset. Well, a mindset is an attitude that you hold like as a person. So you can't actually articulate a mindset. But the moment you do that, it becomes a principle. So like the label is slightly misleading. Like all these things fail early to succeed. So you know, all these things are actually principles. It's only if somebody internalizes this that it becomes a mindset. 
And you can only test for this if the person is in a situation where he reacts without much thought on something. So if he reacts like to uh, failing with shrugging it off and say like, great, learn something, chances are that person has a mindset. But if, that, if another person says, like, yeah, fail, failing is important, like in large organizations, for example, leaders say failing is important, but the next minute, like, he walks out the door and there's, like, a couple of employees in the room and he kind of almost, like, screams at somebody for having done a mistake, you probably know that this person hasn't incorporated the mindset that you want others to live up on. It's not authentic, and usually people also don't follow that if you display this attitude as a leader. If you look at design thinking in large companies, what would you say from, from what you've seen is missing in the design thinking uh, way? And again, I know it's, uh, it's different how you apply it, how you interpret it, and how you use it, but maybe some examples of where, you, where, where some of the organizations was, yeah, it's, it's good, but we have to add this, or we have right. to add this uh, on top of it. So in most organizations that I've spoken to, um, what was missing is the business side. Well, we all know the Venn diagram by Tim Brown, which says it's about viability, feasibility, desirability. Viability is not that often addressed. There are actually little tools about this. We focus heavily on being empathic, but like getting it into your organization, making it viable and bringing it to the market is something that is lacking. And a lot of organizations realize that. So it started early on with some people using uh, Business Model Canvas by Alexander Osterwalder. And it continued to develop while now like some of the bigger design agencies, they actually started to hire and have positions as business designers, which focus on financial modeling and other tools that really help to cover the business side, understand the business better, and really like tailor it to what is really viable. So that's one thing. Um, another thing that I found like limiting is that with all approaches like design thinking, lean startup, um, so on and so forth, they focus on the operational level. They focus on the process. They don't tell you where in the organization to use it. They don't tell you how to incentivize people. They don't tell you like um, how to make it work in your specific parts or in specific parts of the organization. That is often lacking and left to the imagination of the individual. But this Doing this requires a knowledge of change, a knowledge of transformation, a knowledge of behavior of humans and how to change that over time. And so most organizations don't stop for that because they think like doing the process is enough and actually it's not. You have to also cater for the environment. If you don't do that, it, chances are quite high that it will fall flat. And we've seen that in some organizations. So keeping that in mind that this is not articulated and addressed is actually important and it's a missing part. A third missing part that I want to mention, where it's not so much a missing part, but it is there, but it's not stated. So in design thinking, you have a couple of assumptions um, that are not stated. One assumption is that the team that does the project is actually allowed to challenge like the existing understanding of the product or the service that you create. With that, it challenges the strategy and the course that your organization set. And with that, it challenges leadership. So, which is the problem? Because if your team comes up with evidence from customers that the direction that you are going is wrong, you're bound to have a conflict. And not knowing that when you start with design thinking and not addressing it because it's not written anywhere that you should address it, right, is actually uh, leading to some friction within your organization, especially if you roll it out across, I don't know, a couple of thousand people, unless you want that friction to happen. Let me ask you about that. That would have been one of my next questions about leadership. 
if you put if you put design thinking and leadership uh, into this into or if you let them collide and and see what is important in terms of leadership um, and what also is changing or has to change the lead uh, for the leaders that have been use, using other mindsets or other ways of organizing before and suddenly uh design thinking methods and tools are used uh, as a way of organizing innovation in in the beginning uh, what have you seen what do you think leaders need and what have you seen were some of the conflicts that you were actually talking about now mm. i think there there are a couple of things so um when it comes to leadership um, there are a couple of ideas about what leadership is and there are a couple of ideas what management is and sometimes they get confused. But um, if we adhere to the general idea of how managers work and lead projects, product um, development and stuff like that, I would say the stereotype would be um, this idea of command and control. Right? So it started with Taylorism that the person at the top had the best understanding of the processes carried out. Hence, he or she would micromanage or would instruct the ones that carry out the work. So we had a clear separation, at least in the idea, of like brain at the top and work at the bottom. Right? And of course, now we educate people. I mean, I'm in the business of educating people um, that have superior knowledge, especially in fields like, for example, uh, computer science, where people are trained on outdated systems and the new ones who come in with like at a younger age have more experience in these newer systems. So what do you do there? So leadership is actually challenged and the role is changing. The role is changing from one that is top down to one that's more supportive. And also like along with that goes one thing that um, a couple of studies found significant for innovation to happen which is psychological safety so you want to create a climate in which people are actually feel safe to express their ideas and to actually collaborate and they feel like they can like share uh, vulnerabilities with others if you don't have that if you don't role model that as a leader which is one of the most important thing because you set the tone for the team for your division for your function then chances are your employees won't do it. So it's really important for a leader in this to actually role model whatever they understand, like design thinking, lean startup, or whatever it is, is. So if you think that design thinking is about human-centeredness first, and if you behave like a jerk at work, chances are nobody takes you serious. So you better make sure that the way you want to treat your customers, you also treat your employees, and you empower your employees to actually get that work done in the right way. Let me ask you of the kind of people uh, that are maybe, in terms of recruiting, but in terms of also educating those teams in, in design thinking, which is often a, a very different way of, of, of doing things and especially being then in touch with customers and users firsthand, face-to-face, -face, which for many at least is a new uh, experience. Uh, what do you think uh, is it, Do you recruit in a different way? Do you do trainings? What were the different, uh, what were the different kind of strategies that some of the companies were doing in order to, to equip or to find people that were actually then also, that knew the, the organization sufficiently well and, and the products and services, but also uh, were able to adopt that uh, kind of different uh, working style? Right. So a lot of the organizations we spoke to actually uh, focused on 
volunteers and trying to recruit them internally. Um, they asked for intact projects teams to join, or they had like an open network where everybody could come, be trained, and be called like a design thinking facilitator or something. All of these approaches to train people internally have pros and cons, but overall they lead to a very rapid uh, spread of the gospel. Problem with that is that if people think as a result of that they know design thinking, they oftentimes like start to practice design thinking in a way that might be not the way you intended it to be. Because after one time training, most people don't actually use, know how to use this. So especially three days, um, which I would refer to as an awareness training, helps you to get a little bit of a glimpse of that. But to expect people to run a project based on a three day training is actually a little bit too much. Um, Another thing when it comes to external um, hires. Uh, so, for example, IBM is very public about um, their efforts in hiring people. And I'm just now writing this case study with a friend of mine, a colleague, on the topic. But the way that they go about hiring is actually they realize that there are not enough good people out there. So they go directly to the schools and they hire from schools all around the globe. And so they also realize that the existing HR function is not equipped to evaluate these people because they don't have any experience hiring these people. So they came up with their own hiring function that actually not only identifies talents and screens it, but also then trains it for three months in the beginning so that the new designers would actually be fluent in the IBM lingo, the way they do things, IBM ways of bringing design thinking to life, so on and so forth. So they invest a lot in talent development in this area because for them, it's also a major driver of transformation and change, which is one of the core things they want to foster in the upcoming years. Let me add, you've been talking a bit about it in a couple of questions earlier, uh, which was about the environment. And, and I would like you to ask uh, a question about space. Uh, design thinking and space and, and working environment or working spaces, uh, so to say. Uh, how, do you think how important is that to, to be accommodated uh, to accommodate the working style, and how should it look like? As a brief description. Okay. So when it comes to space, there is this idea of like it has to look colorful and has to be furniture all over the place and like on wheels, and we need to be like we need to like show how agile we are, not only in the ways we think, but also in the ways we operate. And I think there's some merit to it. However, I wouldn't overstate it. Like in my case, I've been trained as a designer and I did some of my best work with my colleagues sitting in a coffee shop, right? So, and there's no movable furniture. In fact, it was just like my colleagues, myself, like a bunch of markers and some paper. So, but where this environment really helps is if you're not used to this way of working. It's actually a strong signal to people that things that happen in this room, especially if it's a corporate building, are meant to be different. With that, you give the signal that allow, and the allowance for people to not like use their corporate behavior in a corporate uniform, but engage in a new way. So they will come into this room not knowing how to behave, which is great because it helps you to actually open them up to engage them in design thinking behavior. So this way, a room can really help. The other thing is that design thinking work, especially if you work in sprints, for example, which is not only in design thinking, but in a couple of other um, methodologies, is actually very intensive. So you want to make sure that people are not get, that people don't get tired and they have the possibility to move around a little bit to keep the blood circulate and to keep them fresh 
right? So if you don't have that, and if you if you sit at your desk, chances are they might go out or might like be distracted or their concentration suffers because of it. And also, like the group aspect is probably one of the biggest things. Like you want to allow a team to really work together and not work separate at their desk, like being in front of their screens. So if you factor in all these things, um, yes, there is a need for a specific setup. Um, however, what that up that setup is depends a little bit on the team on which approaches they take on this like in addition to design thing they might take on lean startup or lean innovation or jobs to be done they might be out in field a lot they might be in-house a lot so it really depends a little bit on the work is structured and because of that the room should be structured but i wouldn't do like a, a big restructuring just for restructuring's sake um, that said a room is always a big or a space is always a big signal to the organization, to the rest of the organization, because it presents a visual evidence of the change that is happening. And that might be one reason why you want to have that and why you want to invest in that, because it will show that resources are actually spent on this, and if resources are spent on this, it's actually quite important. Plus, it usually looks a little bit more pleasant, so people are drawn to it, and they want to know more about it. They get curious because it's off the norm. And it signals a different behavior, and that the different behavior is allowed and is actually encouraged in this space. So room has certainly a role, um, especially like early on when you start with your design thinking efforts, when you want to train people, and when, when you want to send a signal to the organization. Last question, Ingo, is about you know, if you look at innovation over the, over the last, you know, into a bit into the past and to today, what do you think has, uh, has changed and why do you think uh, those changes has happened? Mm -hmm. um, so the way I would see it is that initially we said like, oh, we don't have any great ideas. And that is the problem, right? We put things on the market and they would just fly. And we said, like, oh, our organization is bad at having ideas. So we needed to find new ways to come up with ideas with better concepts. That's certainly something that design thinking addressed. But with that, the next problem arose, which was, like, how do we get these ideas into, like, prototypes and into something that's actually marketable? This is where we stand right now when it comes to, like, using lean startup and lean innovation in an organizational context. But then the third level, which will come in the upcoming I think month or years, is that while we can change the processes, the organization like needs to change as well. And we haven't that one figured out quite yet. So we have some knowledge about change, change management, behavior science. But given the statistics of 50% of uh, change initiatives actually working, it's like flipping a coin. So the chances are not really high that if you realize that the product or the service that you offer needs a different organization, that you're actually able to pull that through. But this is what actually needed, like to change the business model, to change the organization structure. This is what's needed for most radical innovation. And this is kind of the bottleneck right now. So we're kind of constantly pushing to actually extend the scope of what's possible inside large organization. And I think this is where we're going right now, and this will be uh, the next challenge for many organizations that participated here in the Innovation Roundtable. Thanks, Ingo. Thanks for pulling out, uh, pulling off those uh, two labs, and thanks for that uh, interesting conversation. Thank you for having me. The video version of this podcast can be accessed via innovationroundtable.online. The Innovation Roundtable online network is your portal to a wide variety of exclusive content, including video presentations, interviews, insights reports, and articles. Not only that, innovationroundtable.online is also a place where you can connect with other corporate innovators, share experiences, request collaborations, and gain inspiration from your peers. 
Our network is exclusively for innovation practitioners and large firms. So visit innovationroundtable.online to discover more and request your seven-day free trial account.